Welcome to the Canadian Real Estate Investor, where hosts Daniel Foch and Nick Hill navigate the market and provide the tools and insights to build your real estate portfolio. Welcome back to another episode of the Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast. My name is Daniel Foch, and today we have a great episode in store for you. We're going to be talking about fraud and not mortgage fraud this time. We're going to be talking about tenant rental application fraud. And then we're also going to go on a little bit of a physics lesson talking about the center of the universe and how its gravity can actually impact the data and skew prices all over the country in this great nation of Canada. And if you haven't got my joke yet, by the way, I'm going to be talking about Toronto and Toronto's market. And we talk about it a little bit and being a canary in the coal mine are a bit of a leading indicator for the Canadian market. And anybody outside of Toronto thinks that Torontonians think that Toronto is the center of the universe. So we're trying to be empathetic to that perspective. And uh, yeah, before we do that, Nick, why don't, you, why don't you kick us off here with a little bit of a discussion? Thanks, Dan. Uh, my name is Nick Hilla. I am a mortgage agent, real estate investor, and lucky enough to be Dan's co-host on this awesome podcast, the number one real estate podcast in the country. And you're right, Dan, today, although physics is not something we usually talk about, we're talking about the center of the universe, Toronto, but we're going to start today's episode off with a discussion about a fugazi, a fugazi, it's a woozy, it's a what'sy, it's fairy dust, it doesn't exist. That line rings a bell to you. It's made famous by Matthew McConaughey in The Wolf of Wall Street as he describes to Leonardo DiCaprio that no stockbroker's know what the market's going to do, whether it goes up, down, or sideways. And it's also in a number of other Martin Scorsese gangster movies. A fugazi is a person or a thing that is fake, a fake or a fraud. And there's a whole lot of that going on right now. Dan, start us off by reading a little bit of this article we have here. Yeah, so from BNN Bloomberg, I'm actually doing an article with Bloomberg right now um, about power of sales, interestingly enough. Uh, nearly half of Canadians think mortgage fraud is common and some are willing to do it, survey says. Mortgage fraud can take several forms. This includes falsifying income, lying about part-time or contract role, being full-time or misrepresenting the source of your down payment, among other lies or omissions. It's interesting, like one of the most common ones is people saying they're going to move into a house and not doing it and using it as a rental property. Super common. Uh, the survey found that while 70% of Canadians say artificially inflating one's income on a mortgage is never acceptable, 17% of respondents said it is. Even more Canadians, 18%, said it was acceptable to misrepresent elements of one's employment in order to secure a mortgage. 47% of respondents said they feel mortgage fraud is common. So almost half of people think that mortgage fraud is a common thing in Canada, while 12% said they think it's very common. Only 5% said they think it's un very uncommon. The problem is no doubt being exacerbated by an extremely unaffordable housing market across the country. RBC said that at the end of 2022, the average household needed to spend 62.7% of their income to cover the cost of home ownership. And that was the worst level on record. And in some cities, such as the center of the universe, Toronto, and the other center of the universe in Canada, Vancouver, those numbers actually climbed to a shocking 95.8% no, and 85.2% of income, respectively. Now, high payments are due to a massive increase in interest rates that's happened in the past year, which have more than offset a decline in prices. 
The Bank of Canada's overnight rate, which is used to help set the lending rates, rose from a near zero at the start of 2022 to 4.5% as of last week. Meanwhile, home prices across the country have fallen at that time. The Canadian Real Estate Association shows the average Canadian home cost at 612000 in January of 2023, down 18.3% compared to a year ago. Yeah, I mean, look, to me, it, it, it is very much a desperate times, call for desperate, desperate measures kind of thing, or necessity is the mother of invention. Uh, it, it started in the rental fraud when rent started to soar. And now the, with the movements we see in home prices and interest rates going the wrong way, it's happening more and more on the mortgage space as well. To me, this is like, look, it's, it's fraud for shelter. And this is indication. It's sad to me that our country is in such a state of housing crisis that this is what needs to happen. But on a lighter note, I saw this hilarious comment on one of my recent videos and it reads, Landlords are using fake docs to get a mortgage and then complaining about tenants using fake docs to get a lease. Welcome to Canada. Yeah, I mean, it's crazy and it's it's so ironically accurate that it hurts. For sure. Yeah, another post from Ron Butler on Twitter. The new twist in the mortgage document fraud, fake income docs to manage purchase problems. We've had it. We've had two in the last six weeks. They were both caught, which is actually the case most of the time. What's worrisome is that both represent a new dangerous shift in mortgage fraud. Fake documents to try and fix problems. It used to be unscrupulous real estate agents who would just organize fake income to lure people into home purchases. But the days of people desperate to buy properties evaporated with 5.49% mortgage rates. As I've previously posted, when fixed rates were 1.99%, fake income docs rarely defaulted, but this new thing is dangerous. Ron goes on to say, let's break it down. Number one, guy loses job prior to purchasing, closing, uh, decides to make it look like he still worked there. So gets a job letter from a buddy at the old job, pretending to be an HR, gives buddy a direct line at work. Now, this was a clumsy mistake because we call main lines, not direct lines. So red flag number one. Another scenario, couple buys a house that can't get the price they expected on an old their, on their old townhouse. So they decide to rent it and wait for a better market. But now they need more income to keep the two places. Two factual job letters, but decided to fake T4s to bump up a two-year average bonus. Bit more of a sophistication here, but at one particular bank who tends to just use T4s and pay subs, this may have worked, but they wanted to get a low rate, so they came to us. Again, this is Ron Butler, but that won't work with us. We caught it because one of those jobs would never have any substantial bonus component. What's so dangerous? Both cases, these people were subject to clear financial stress on closing. Real possibility that they could fall into arrears quickly. So again, um, that's from one of the biggest mortgage brokers in Canada. Obviously, has a lot of great mortgage insights. Um, Nick, what are your, some of your biggest takeaways on this as a participant in the mortgage space? Yeah, I mean, look, for, for mortgage brokers and for anyone else involved on the professional transactional side, I would say, you know, number one thing is know your client. And, and I mean, really get to know them and do your due diligence. And speaking of due diligence, one more quick story, Dan, before we dive into the rest of the episode, because this is just so crazy. I know we, we're both shocked that this hasn't gone viral. So, viral, so we're going to try to pump it up a little here because this is absolutely crazy. Dan, why don't we read this point by point? Okay. So a 
a realtor who we know pretty well gets a rental application with good income and employment, and he calls the employer and speaks to the HR director. So the HR director, upon hearing the name, immediately says, yes, that person works here. Yes, they started on X date. And yes, they make X exact amount of money. So red flag number one, and and Jordan being experienced in this, most HR directors don't know offhand. They'd have to be pulling a file. They'd put you on hold. They don't know the exact start date and salary of their employee. Like it's, It's a little alarming that they're immediately prepared for this call and start rifling off all of the answers to the questions that you haven't even asked yet. Exactly. A little too good to be true, too easy. So so then he goes and pulls up the website for the company that this person supposedly works at. And it says the company was started in 2017 and it's some kind of financial services company. So then he goes and looks up the URL and finds that the website was registered like on a Whois lookup um, and it was founded in 2022. So then he's like, okay, this is interesting. Maybe you know I can find more if I look up the you know, go look on the federal corp where you can look up any federal registered corporation and there's nothing there. So then he looks at the accessible code and what, and discovers that the website was made on Wix, which is sort of like, a, I mean, if you're an entrepreneur, I'm sure you've probably whipped up a website on Wix before. It's a pretty low budget platform that, you know, a large financial institution with, uh, you know, a lot of client information to protect likely would not build a site on. So from there, he... He goes directly to Wix and finds the exact, this is where it gets so good, finds the exact same template on the consulting and coaching um, drop down menu. And they left, they literally left the website the exact same. They didn't even change the stock photos on the website. And then he goes to LinkedIn and looks up the company, which has one employee and that employee named Herman only has 29 connections, which is actually like, I mean, that's 29 clicks further than these fraudsters probably even had to go. It's just ridiculous <laughs> from my perspective, this whole thing. Then, this is, not, this is not over yet. Then he takes that photo and does a photo origin search on Google. Turns out the photo is of some guy that lives in London, England. His name is Roy, and he's got an actual job and has nothing to do with this fake, completely fraudulent. Poor uh, Roy just getting I, absolutely I, roped into this Canadian I, mortgage fraud, rental application fraud scheme. Crazy. So absolutely wild. Go check out the video. Jordan Skrinko, real estate detective and, and good friend of the show. We actually just booked him on, so he'll be on in the next couple months to tell us all about the wonderful world of pre-construction. He's also the mystery pre-con Don who left our, he's our first, first cult member in our reviews, I suppose, is what, what he's saying there. Um, yeah, I mean, that, that was crazy. It's a really good piece of content. If you get a chance to go check it out on Jordan's, uh, Instagram and TikTok, it's, uh, it's, it's really good stuff. It's hilarious, actually. So while we're talking about Toronto or Jordan and Toronto and pre-con and all of that stuff, cause Jordan is probably the, the bull of Toronto, the wolf of Woodbine, you might call him. Uh, Toronto, center of the universe, <laughs> downtown Canada, et cetera. We know all the jokes and we, we try not to talk too much about Toronto, but the reality is 20% of Canadians and therefore 20% of our listeners, probably actually more than that, live in the greater Toronto and Hamilton area. Um, there's a map that was shared on, um, on Instagram. I, I shared it on my story and it showed how different provincial populations actually fit into parts of Ontario. So it was like the entire population of Alberta fits into Toronto and Peel. BC population fits into basically the surrounding Greater Golden Horseshoe down to Niagara region. Nova Scotia fits into southwestern Ontario. New Brunswick fits into like the Windsor-Essex corridor. It's like two small regions down there. And then PEI fits into Gray-Bruce County. 
Yeah, I mean, while that that map was uh, kind of shocking to see, the average Ontario household size is 2.6, whereas the Canadian household size overall is around the same at 2.4. So this is how Ontario's real estate market has really skewed that national debt and the national statistics that we cover. There are more houses and the houses are worth more than $800,000 as the national average is actually below $700,000. Yeah. So what this does is it would basically just cause a base number of factor or skew in the data because Toronto is basically taking so much of the weight of the number of homes and the number of transactions and the total dollar volume. And so we keep seeing this, you know, and, and Korea is beginning to admit that the greater Toronto area is skewing data a lot. But another factor that's worth thinking about is very early in the podcast, when the GTA market was correcting, we started talking about housing cycles and how and what was happening in the GTA and how you can often look at the more overheated, maybe more sophisticated and more credit sensitive markets that are very financialized, that are very heavy with speculation as markets that are forward looking or almost leading indicators of what you might see happen across the country. And Toronto blew off much earlier than everywhere else, basically before the or like as soon as there was the first 25 bip rate hike prices dropped from february to march pretty substantially and then the remainder of the country followed and i've said this kind of that you know toronto would likely lead us into the correction but it'll also lead us into recovery i think and so watching for when that recovery does start to take place and watching what trends are happening in the gta and and those toronto markets I think will be an important indicator of what we can expect to see for investors coast to coast. And the last piece I'll leave you with on that before I actually get into the data that I'm going to talk about here is a lot of money is made in the GTA and then gets ported out. So we saw a lot of flight of capital of young people leaving Toronto and moving to Halifax, as an example, or BC. And so there's also that um, wealth effect that happens from money exiting the GTA. So first heading here I have, and this is coming, this is going to, these are all the headings from the, my, my first actually full economic report that I'm doing as the director of economic research for rare real estate. So Ooh, fancy. this will be available. Yeah. I'll, I'll try and link it in the show notes maybe, but um, housing costs are contributing to inflation at a record rate. This is really interesting from my perspective. The bank of Canada has honestly walked themselves into a trap. Rising mortgage costs are contributing to inflation at the highest rate since the 1990s per Ben Rabidou on Twitter. Annual change in mortgage interest cost index in CPI is the largest since the data started in the early 90s. It could be the largest on record. Rising mortgage interest costs alone added 0.6 percentage point to the headline 5.9% inflation print. So that means that 10% of current inflation was the result of just mortgage cost increases that started since this time last year. So a good portion of inflation is actually within the scope of control of the Bank of Canada. And the market seems to be now pricing in a pause from the Bank of Canada at the next meeting in March. Yeah, we're so this is March 2nd. We're recording the next meeting, I believe, is on March 8th, where we will or will not see an announcement. It's funny. We've, we've seen the markets price in, price out, price in, price out these, these potential rates. Um, let's move on to the next heading here. House prices are returning to volatility. Now, obviously, I'm going to define volatility, and I tried to you see don't if like there was a doing definitions. So, like, well, I don't, I don't mind them, but you I know, know, it's really hard see, for you to define this here. I tried to see if there was like a Latin origin of this to get you involved, but unfortunately, there's not. I think it comes from 
There was, but it didn't yeah, really make Latin sense. Vol- volleyball, volatility. Volley, yeah. yeah. Vo- Which means to fly or something. Yeah, it's like, like volleyball, that. yeah. Same thing. Yeah, kind of. Yeah. So, it means liability to change rapidly and unpredictably, especially for the worse. So, volatility overall likely isn't a good thing in most markets. People who like housing because it's a stable asset, yet its price trend in Canada hasn't really shown that. The biggest annual drop in house prices since the 1980s. Go back and check out episode two, uh, where we do a deep dive into all the recessions and how they affected the Canadian housing market and how housing has performed in those rising rate environments. Now, Korea is reporting the largest year-over-year drop in prices on record. And we see buyer psychology and consumer sentiment slowly start to feel a bit more comfortable and kind of settle in as those prices get lower. There is less risk below them because we are now closer to that bottom or possibly riding that bottom. We'll see. Sounds a little optimistic to me. Well, someone's got to be a bull around here. Yeah. <laughs> there's, there's more upside above them, which means they're further from that previous top, that previous peak that we've experienced. Now, buyers typically wait for that downward trajectory of price so they can, you know, experience that bottom. And, and ideally make a decision from there. That's where all this sitting on the sidelines, trying to time the market psychology comes into play. The next few months and year over year price declines will appear very bad and probably the worst due to us having those crazy peaks in February and March of last year, 2022. Now the market appears hopeful and buyers begin to reenter after seeing those drops with the idea that, Hey, it's already bad. It's already bad. It can't get much worse than that. And at the same time, we're seeing annual drops on the national average. Prices drop seems to have stabilized on a monthly basis with price jumping significantly into the February 2023. Time will tell whether this is just a seasonal bump or a true gain. Yeah. So basically, we are seeing prices actually rising and they typically would rise from January to February, but it was a, it was a big jump. It was, it looked a lot like the jump that we saw this time last year heading mm-hmm. into the craziest spring market that we've ever seen. I, I don't like a lot of that's composition mix. And, and so it's worth thinking about that. You know, families start to buy typically in the spring market. And so families typically buy more expensive products. So you're seeing more four bedrooms sell than three bedrooms as an example. And that can skew price up. Families want to buy in the spring so they can close in the summer between school years, as an example. And so kind of just wait to see what this actually means. Um, but, but it's interesting because, you know, we're talking about how buyers typically will wait to see. They want to stop seeing prices going down. But over the next couple of months, February and, and March, the year over year, data points are going to sound like prices are really down because we had such high peaks, such high prices in February and March. So, And Korea has already telegraphed this. They've said this in all of their past uh, releases saying, guys, the data points are going to sound really bad. And the media is probably going to get a hold of that. And it's going to sound scary. And we're, we just saw G- uh, our first quarter of zero GDP growth, 0% GDP growth. So that's a real decline you know, against inflation at 5.9%. That's a negative 5.9% GDP last quarter. So probably not far off from starting to hear the R word thrown around in Canada. That's uh, Ricky Martin, by the way. No, it's, re- <laughs> it's, it's recession. Um, and, uh, and, and that would be coupled with, you know, hearing about a lot of house prices. And I'm not going to say like what I think the impact of that is on the market. I think it could be deduced, but it's just, these are th- all factors that are worth thinking about. Now, this is the crazy part. We started seeing 
volume really recovery. You're hearing anecdotally about a lot of activity happening in the market. And it seems like the market's like very temperamental right now. It's being super responsive to the government of Canada five-year bond yield. And interest rates are really driving the market. And we knew that when but this time last year, everybody was buying variable, buying with variable rate mortgages. And so the, their volat- they were already attached to the volatility. Now, because fixed rates are priced better, people are going, if, if, the, if the bond yield drops and fixed rates come down, people rush in to, to lock in those rates. They want to go buy, get those rate holds because they want to lock in those good fixed rates in the event that the fixed rate goes up again. So mortgage applications, this is a crazy stat. Coming from rates.ca, mortgage applications are up 48% in January. This is crazy from my perspective because January 2022 was a very hot market. And this is indicating that buyer opportunism could be returning to the market or at the very least, people are trying to get mortgages to go buy. The government of Canada, five years in control and the market seems to be temperamentally responding to its volatility. When fixed rates drop, you see a rush of people trying to lock in rates basically. Fixed mortgages, as I mentioned, are now lower than variable interest rates. Buyers typically choose the lower rate. We assume that they're rational actors. They want to maximize borrowing power and pay less money. 75% now are choosing fixed interest rates. Variable rates, again, just as a quick refresher, variable rates are priced based on the Bank of Canada BOC overnight rate. Fixed rates are priced based on the GOC, Government of Canada bond yields. Home buyers now depend more on bond yields than the Bank of Canada. And we talked about this a couple of episodes ago. We tend to be, we try and forecast stuff a little bit here uh, carefully, right? But no one's got a crystal ball, but you know, maybe. but you can say, okay, you know, you assume all of these factors, people are rational actors, fixed rates are cheaper. The bond, the bond yield is really going to be in control of the market. And now we're starting to see the effect of that bond yield drops. People rush in and go get a bunch of mortgages. So now we have. 48% increase in mortgages, but we don't have that increase in bought in purchase activity. It's not, so there's a sense of urgency evolving for people to try and lock in rates, but we're not seeing people out buying volume still down like 50% based on Toronto real estate board stats from February. Yeah. Um, and over the last, sorry, in the, over the last few years, experts believe yields are indicating the market believes interest rates now will likely be higher for longer. Yeah. I mean, I'm fascinating stuff to, to see mortgage applications up. I guess the real question here, is this volatility or is this cyclicality? Right now, we've seen prices have seen the largest year-over-year drop since the 90s. But in spite of this, prices just saw the largest month-over-month jump since February 22. Now, Dan, you and I talked about this last year when we were witnessing this. The kangaroo market seems to be back. The market is becoming increasingly temperamental and, again, very responsive to the direction of that GOC five-year yield. Totally, yeah. And it is interesting because, you know, a lot of people, when I posted that stat, that there's the biggest month-over-month jump, well, they're like, yeah, because the market was declining ever since fe- the peak in February 2022, but it wasn't actually. Prices continued up into March. March was a high at a higher price than February. So, we still do have one month of bad year-over-year data, probably a, a couple, but, um, but you know, March could, could sound worse. But so the jump that we just saw happen in price in the Toronto market was comparable to um, f- February to March jump in 2022. So pretty interesting. Um, you know, and now we're hearing a lot of anecdotes that sold over asking seems to be back. And statistically, the, you know, the, in January, the data didn't support that. When agents were out there being like, everything's in a bidding more, everything's selling over asking. The average sale to list price ratio was under 100%. So statistically, more properties are selling below asking than above asking. Or the ones that are selling below are selling way more below than the ones selling above. In February, the average sale to list price 
ratio jumped up meaningfully above 100%. And similarly, the percentage of properties sold over asking jumped from 26.5% to 35.6%. So we are seeing an increase in competition. And it could be as a result of inventory scarcity, which is a theme that we keep hearing in the market. But, you know, something's happening here. And, and it's, there's anecdotes, there's the bullishness, there's the frenzy, there's the FOMO creation that a lot of realtors really get wrapped up in and that gets, you know, they get, I guess, shamed for. And I don't like to participate much in that stuff, but there are data points to support that the market is, it's, despite being very slow, it is, it is pretty strong. Yeah, and and on that note of of slowing, absorption is slowing. So that means that these properties, although they might be either listed under market value or sold over asking, they are taking longer to sell. And I mean, last year you could list your home, and within days you had multiple offers over over asking. But properties are still taking longer to sell than they typically would in at normal February. The medium sold listing spends 12 days on the market. Again, this is Toronto, a slower absorption period than the past three years. 2019 was the most recent year that had higher days on market than the current market we're seeing now. The pace of the market, however, is slowing with the average and medium days on market reaching pre-pandemic heights. I think this is a sign that we're entering a bit more of a healthy and balanced market. And we've talked a lot about this, Dan, but healthy market, balanced market, buyer's market, seller market, which, you know, which is Dude, good. Sounds because like a we Dr. See- Seuss rhyme or something. <laughs> we should write a little doctor. We should we get should. we should get this over to Dr. Seuss, see what he can do with it, um, which is good because of that we see that reduced fear of missing out, which, which made a lot of people make bad decisions. A lower risk of participants that are getting caught between that buy and sell and closings are now being a bit easier as deals have time to include financing and inspection conditions and you know this is something that as a mortgage agent we always always urge and and advise our clients to include financing conditions even in the you know the insanity of the market last year it was extremely important but people were losing out on offers be strictly because they had a financing or inspection condition so it's great to see the return of those which which should be boxes that are required to be checked through any transaction for sure yeah i think it is it's an interesting market that's evolving here if we start seeing some more inventory and getting into a more buyer's market inventory scenario uh, I, I could i would i might be at the point where i would say you know this is a good like a generally good market for people to be looking for properties in. I still think that there's there's a bit too much like frenzy based on the lack of inventory and you know it could very easily if absorption ramped up like so if, if this trend of selling over asking and fast sales kept going, you know, we could very easily end up in a seller's market again and that would look a little bit like a bull trap from my perspective. Um and maybe I'll I'll look up the definition of what a bull trap is or maybe you can while I'm while I'm doing my next couple of talking points here because I think it's, you know, like you look at those mania graphs and there is always that bull trap and we did see that in 89's blow off, you know, there was two peaks and so I think it is just a little bit worth evaluating whether or not that risk is there. Like I don't actually think the market is just going to be okay we hit the bottom and then we just skyrocket again that's not really how it works especially with interest rates that are triple 
the capital costs that they were this time last year. So I think you have the big sell-off. I think you trade kind of flat or grind down very slowly. It feels flat over time, but you see slow reductions in price. And you do see a little bit of this seasonal volatility that we're seeing right now. You know, these 5 10% increases month over month heading into the spring and whatever. It's not just a straight upward trajectory. You look eager to hit me with a definition here, Nick. Very eager. A bull trap. <laughs> so a bull trap is a false signal referring to a declining trend in a stock, an index, or another security. In this case, obviously, we're discussing real estate that reverses after a convincing rally and breaks a prior support level. The move traps traders or investors that acted on the buy signal and generates losses on resulting long positions. A bull trap may also refer to a wispaw pattern. Don't know what that is. Going to have to look that one up too. It's a boxing the opposite move. Of a bear I think trap. southpaw, wispaw, bear, <laughs> bear, yeah, bears because the bears have paws, right? That's what I think. Yeah. Essentially, essentially, just means you you follow the market. There was a little rally within a within a downturn. You jumped on that and got caught, and now are likely left holding some kind of bag. Or property. <laughs> Hopefully a nice bag, like a Gucci <laughs> or something like that. But uh, no, I mean, I, I think it's like, you know, it's we're really running the risk of, of this phenomena happening in the Canadian market because people felt so marginalized by the real estate market for the past three years as prices went up. And now all of a sudden they're like, oh, rates are coming down or rates are rate prices are coming down, but rates are going up and it's still more, it's still more expensive for me to own than it was. And, and so people are just like, it's not even a fear of missing out anymore. It's just like the exhaustion of missing out or like just being fed up with, and, and I really think you're getting to that point of exhaustion or like capitulation on a lot of people where they're just like, okay, I'm just going to go buy, I got to just go buy something. This is the last chance if they see prices kind of trending up in the spring. So I would caution people to remember that interest rates are still high. It, it, prices can't really accelerate unless all of your friends are exceptionally richer than you and then I think and that the data shows there's just not enough income or liquidity to uh, support major price growth in the Canadian market we also have foreign ho- homeowner foreign purchases are banned outright <laughs> like so um, try not to get wrapped up in in frenzy in the spring market because I can already see my industry really pushing. Just to, gearing up to make it. that, yeah, to make that the theme over the next couple of months. So I would just encourage people to have a healthy dose of caution and uh, not FOMO. And remember that good deals are made, not found. Next up on the list, I think we got lower market activity. So December and January are typically very slow months, uh, but the past two months, so January and December, were exceptionally slow. December 2022 and January 2023 just barely had more transactions than the lockdown month of April 2020. Wow. Crazy, eh? So we are seeing volume trending up as it typically does in the spring market. February did okay, but it wasn't a standout by any means. And volume is significantly lower than last year. I think it's it's 47% in February below. That's the new stat that came out from Treb's Market Watch Report, Treb being the Toronto Real Estate Board. But 2022 was exceptionally high. So it's like, okay, maybe it's somewhere in the middle. Let's say it's 25% below long-term average, which is probably pretty close to correct, 25 to 30% below long-term average. Um, so still low. Um, since 2019, the only three months slower than February 2023 were the last two months and the COVID lockdown. So that gives you some perspective here. And <laughs> this is really what is putting a lot of pressure on my profession. And this is probably why you're seeing people trying to get the market frenzied up because 
like uh, realtors aren't going to admit this to you and for most part because they like to flex but like the dollar volume of real estate transactions is down 50 percent. so statistically if everybody does the exact same thing and the same number of people are participating in the market everyone's income has been cut in half and so that's like and and honestly like if i if i'm looking at the data right now my transaction is 50 percent below what it was this time last year in january and february so it's unignorable that there's going to have some impacts on this and this starts to create a little bit of distress in the market. Now let's talk about distress, my friend. I'm happy you said that. The words distress and pressure definitely segue nicely into this next segment, which is seen an increase in distressed selling. So the number of power of sales listings are trending up based on TREB data. Some owners may be run out of options and kind of desperately looking for that exit. The power of sales have been steadily increasing for the last five months, and we saw a big jump up in August. We have seen over 437% increases in power of sales since February of 2022. Take that in. Now, to be fair. 437% increase. To be fair, like it is a, it is a really scary sounding stat, but this is my original research. And uh, so, like, so I pri- did primary research on this on the Toronto Real Estate Board uh, back end. And so the numbers aren't like it went from like eight to 41 listings, I think is the exact number. So it's, it's like, it sounds crazy, but it's like, it's only 41 power of sales. And it was, there was eight last February. So just so you're like to, to not be, you know, I don't like when people are excessively bullish or unnecessarily bullish or creating FOMO. I also don't like when people fear monger. So I don't want to be a fear monger by putting that stat out there, but it's, it is, that's, that is mathematically how much it's increased, but it's worth noting that it's eight to 41 power of sales over thousands of listings. And it's still less than 1% of total listings. If we see that hit 2%, I'd start being concerned and we could, I don't know, but I'm just, that's my, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, no, very, very good points and very important. Remember, we're not here trying to spread fear. We're just here trying to put out the best information we can. So again, as Dan said, even though it's gone up 437%, which is a comic, comical number at this point, it still remains below that 1% of total listings. So that's not really a significant amount of supply. Now, with such a small amount, the impact this will have on the market is kind of tough to determine. It's, it's early days. However, most investors, and we've been getting these calls a lot recently, is believe that distressed properties can create a good opportunity for creative deal making. And you may or may not be correct. There's major differences between what we're used to hearing and seeing south of the border in the States with power of sales and distressed sales and what actually happens on the ground up here in Canada. So to get a bit better of an understanding of this, go revisit episode 53 where we did a deep dive on all the distressed deals, power of sales, and all that other good stuff. Yeah. So, and and we'll maybe actually just, I guess, recount some of that content. So I'm just actually going to read the notes from that show and we'll just quickly go through that because I think it's worth noting, you know, we are talking about Toronto data right now, but, you know, we try and represent Canadian investors and a lot of people think you can get good deals on power of sales where you literally can't because the lender has a duty to yeah. protect the equity of the seller. So we'll explain this real quick. So key differences between power of sale and foreclosure. In a power of sale, the lender sells the property. In a foreclosure, the lender takes title of the property. So they take possession of the property. In a power of sale, the former homeowner gets any excess profits from the sale of the property. In a foreclosure, the former homeowner gets nothing. 
The power of sale process takes around six months and a foreclosure can take over a year. And this varies, the type, the system that is used varies on a province by province basis. And Nick's going to get me started on where power of sale is most common. So we see power of sale very common in Ontario, Newfoundland, New Brunswick, New Brunswick, and Prince Edward Island. New Brussy. So here. Bruz. Um, Foreclosure is most common or more common in British Columbia, Alberta, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, Quebec, and Nova Scotia. And yeah, I mean, maybe worth jumping into probably the other major trend that we're seeing, which is maybe pre-distress or people basically trying to get, trying to innovate to get out of positions. So an increase in structured deals or vendor takebacks. So sellers are getting creative. One of the hallmarks of the 1990s housing market correction was a massive increase in vendor takebacks or VTBs. VTB listings are on an uptrend. Um, VTBs are making, they, they basically make a listing competitive in a credit constrained market. So right now, you know, we, we talk about how house, housing affordability was so bad this time last year and just because of price, because rates were super low. But yet um, now housing affordability is even worse but prices are down 20%. It doesn't make sense, right? But the reason is because what's preventing housing from being affordable is interest rates. And so set, we know that Canadian homeowners have a lot of equity, record equity still in their homes, even after this blow off. Like, I mean, well, I guess it was record when prices were insane last year, but it's still really, really good, strong equity position. And so sellers earn yield and defer capital gains when they offer a vendor take back to a purchaser. This trend shows that even sophisticated owners who understand concepts like this are selling property and they're using their uh, their sophistication to make deals more compelling. More residential VTBs were offered in the past 12 months than any other period on the data set that I could find. Now, and that might be different in the 90s, but I just don't have data for there. Um, but percentage-wise, it probably is probably higher in the 90s, but Total volume is obviously less because there's way less houses in the 90s. Anyway, now let's examine whether or not we've actually broken the price floor set by end users and investors. So let's assume that we have. And, and what would be the next price floor? Yeah, before we before we jump into that, I just want to say go back and listen to episode 46. VTB's vendor takebacks can make every deal better. Dan, we're actually negotiating two different properties right now with, uh, with vendor takebacks for our own portfolio. But let's talk about a price floor, not to be confused with the pricing of flooring. Totally, which is thing. ridiculous. Totally which, out of control. That's a, which that's is a, also that's a chart I do not like looking at. <laughs> so a price floor is the lowest legal price that can be paid in a market for goods and services, labor, or financial capital. Perhaps the best example of a price floor is minimum wage which is based on the normative view that someone working full-time ought to be able to afford a basic standard of living. Yes, yeah, so it's funny actually because I think, like I used to say price floor like before the NFT craze and people, in a lot of tweets, people would make me explain oh, what it man. was. And then I think <laughs> NFTs and crypto like really popularized the idea of a price floor, to be honest, because all NFTs I think have like, it's called floor prices. Uh, which is basically like the starting bid, I think. Um, and so anyway, I mean, there's a lot of debate as to where the lowest bid exists in the Canadian real estate market. Like when, at what point will prices get low enough that everyone will rush in and be like, we can't, we, we just have to buy. We can't say no. And, you know, some would argue that the end users will, you know, the point at which end users can all afford to buy on the average salary maybe is the price floor or, 
it, when every investor can buy at a 10 cap, then it's a price floor. I mean, it wouldn't be hard to find a, a lot of purchasers at a 10 cap and if, if Toronto prices went that low. The point is they're probably not. But the other piece that sets, and this comes from appraisal principles, the other thing that sets the value of a house is what it costs to build that house. or what And, and the fact that construction costs are escalating could be a component to the price floor. So Nick, are construction costs the final price floor? So Altus Group released their 2023 Canadian Cost Guide, which outlines the cost to construct different types of buildings in Canada. Real estate is an inflation hedge. It's a favorite adage of the own industry. But how does this statement really apply today? Canada is facing inflation and shelter contribute to that inflation. Shelter inflation is worsened by the interest rate hikes. And appraisers and lenders consider replacement costs when valuing property. Dan, what's replacement costs? I mean, replacement costs is basically what it would cost to replace the building, but they typically will apply like depreciation to that as well. So if the house is 50 years old, they usually will give an economic life of 100 years to a house. So if it's 50 years old, they'll depreciate it by 50%. So, you know, like, I mean, I think we bought a prop. Didn't we buy a property recently that we bought it for like, 300 grand below replacement cost based on what it is insured for. Um, that was a good one. Yeah. Always good when your assets are worth more. Um, if they disappeared, then, then if they, <laughs> you didn't know, uh, just uh, stop, stop right there. Yeah. <laughs> they're, I mean, they're well, not disappearing. I mean, not, that's not part of my strategy. Although, yeah. although there has actually been a little bit of, uh, what do you call it? Uh, an increase in, in, uh, bonfires lately I've seen. Mm, so mm-hmm. it's um, funny how that happens in a recession. New construction costs are still elevated, so supply is unviable. Even if prices lower, this means one of two things can happen. Construction costs must come down or new supply shuts off. And we've seen more projects be postponed or canceled, which is just worsening the problem because we're just, you know, kicking that can down the road and creating a supply gap for years in the future, for the coming years in the future. And I think that could extend that kind of concept of volatility as well. Like if you, if you start having these gaps in supply and gaps in demand, where we, like, you know, we have the, the huge demand happening, but then we have these gaps in supply where you've got a big, you know, we're supposed to hit record condo completions this year. I think we hit record condo completions or close to record condo completions last year. Um, you know, urbanation has it at like 30,000, but it's not going to be that. It's going to be like 12 or something. Like they I think they said 30,000 last year and it was 12 or 15,000. But regardless of what it ends up being, it's likely going to be a high number. So you have a huge flood of supply. You got a lot of supply in the pipeline that's going to get, get completed that's pre-sold over the next couple of years. But then you're getting a lot of projects where people are choosing not to pre-sell. And so, you know, let's say your average high rise project takes four years, maybe as an example. Um, in four years, we probably have a gap in the supply pipeline. And that could align actually pretty nicely with when I would actually expect a recovery to start happening. Like I think when you start getting through the point where everyone has renewed at these crappy rates and all of a sudden we're all playing the same game, then you start kind of saying, okay, let's rebuild the economy on this in this new normal world. And uh, if that supply gap corresponds with that, that could really be kind of the momentum that the market would need to recover at that point. So... It, there, there you have so it, folks. It's a, a bit whole of a new world coming up. 
Yeah, I mean, well, it's, you just got to wait. You just, like, what is that, the Sam Zell quote, like, staying alive, keep it alive till 95 or whatever, right? It's, I think stay alive till 2025 is probably that's what, it, that's my philosophy right now. <laughs> Love it. Let's leave it there. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. Go rate us five stars, write us a review if you want to get in touch with either Dan or myself. For any reason, reach out to us on social media or the email provided in the show notes. Thanks so much. We'll talk to you soon. The Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast is for entertainment purposes only, and it is not financial advice. Nick Hill is a mortgage agent with Premier Mortgage Center and a partner in the G&H Mortgage Group, license number 10317, agent license M21004037. Daniel Foch is a real estate broker licensed with Rare Real Estate, a member of the Canadian Real Estate Association, the Toronto Real Estate Board, and the Ontario Real Estate Association.